to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for the Pharmacy Leadership Podcast. Our discussion for this podcast series focuses on leadership topics within pharmacy practice, including the business of pharmacy, development leadership skills, career transitions, and more. Welcome to part three of the three-part series on financial literacy. This podcast will focus on personal financial literacy topics, such as creating a financial plan, understanding retirement vehicles, and identifying resources for continuous self-education. My name is Ann Nguyen, and I'm a pharmacy manager at Houston Methodist West Hospital in Houston, Texas. I will be your host today for the Pharmacy Leadership Podcast. With me today is Dr. Babit Shah. He's an associate professor at the Jefferson College of Pharmacy in Philadelphia. Thank you for joining us today, Bavik. Let's start talking about today's topic on personal finance, and it is part two of the series on the financial literacy. As a disclaimer, we are not licensed or certified accountants, financial planners, or advisors, or attorneys. Do your due diligence, such as consulting with your own financial advisor before making any decisions. This podcast is for educational purposes only. With that, I'm going to go ahead and start with the first questions. Vivek, can you tell me a little bit about what are the different type of retirement accounts out there and how are they compared to each other? As you know, the retirement accounts sound a lot like alphabet soup with lots of acronyms that can be very confusing. So help to break us down for us. Sure. Thanks for having me. This is a, an area that I had difficulty understanding because like you said, there's just so many different types of accounts, so many different acronyms, and they all have different features. So Broadly speaking, you have two types of plans. You can have, for most individuals, uh, you will have an employer-sponsored plan, such as a 401k or 403b. Uh, the difference between a 401k and a 403b is just the type of employer that you have. So if you have a for-profit employer, you will have a 401k. And if your employer is a nonprofit, like most hospitals, for example, it would be a 403b. And the reason why they're they're called different things is because of the they originate from different sections of the tax code. So section 401k versus section 403b. So you have employer-sponsored plans that we're going to talk about. And then you also have individual retirement accounts, which you can open up on your own and, and fund on your own, independent of having a specific type of employer. You would need to have earned income to fund those IRAs, but you could do that on your own. The nice thing about IRAs and employer-sponsored plans is that they're stackable. So you could have both and you could fund both in any given year. Uh, and they have different contribution limits. So if you're less than age 50 in a 401k or 403b, you could contribute 19500 per year. And if you're with an IRA, you could fund a separate $6,000 per year if you're less than 50. If you're above 50, you, you get a plus up, uh, you get a, a, a catch up contributions in both your employer sponsored plan as well as your IRA. They also differ a little bit in terms of asset protection. This is something that a lot of people don't know about or think about, uh, but they should. The retirement accounts uh, generally have better asset protection. Let's say if you were had a judgment against you or something like that. Uh, generally speaking, 401ks, 403bs are, are asset protected. IRAs are also asset protected, though depending on your state, it might be a lower amount up to like a million dollars. For example, again, consult with a lawyer 
in your own individual state to know what the, the nuances are. But generally speaking, retirement accounts broadly are asset protected compared to a taxable brokerage account, uh, which you could use as an investment account and you could use it for the purposes of retirement or any other purpose, but they generally do not have asset protection. That's a great point. So can you tell the difference between like Roth versus traditional funds so folks can understand that a little bit better in terms of contributions and distributions? Yeah, absolutely. So this is another sort of, because there's so many types of accounts available or types of plans available, you want to think strategically as to uh, which ones you should use and for what purpose, because they have different tax implications. And so you could have a traditional IRA, you could have a traditional 401k and traditional 403b. You could also have the Roth version. You could have a Roth IRA, Roth 401k, Roth 403b. And the difference between traditional versus Roth is that with a traditional account, when you put money in, you uh, say these are tax deferred accounts. And what that means is that in the year that you put money in, you save uh, on your income taxes for that year in which you put the money in. Uh, and so depending on what your marginal rate is, uh, you will save at that marginal rate. So if it's at 22%, 24% in that tax bracket, that's what you would save. With Roth accounts, when you put money in, it's after-tax money. So you it's already money that you already paid taxes on. It's the money that is in your bank account after your net pay, for example, and then you fund it. And so this is post-tax dollars. With both traditional and Roth, as the money grows over time, it grows without incurring any taxes. And then when you take money out, this is where the, the difference comes up again. So with traditional accounts, when you take money out, remember when you put money in into a traditional account, it was tax-free or it was tax-deferred rather. It grew tax-deferred. And then when you take it out in your retirement, in your 60s, 70s, whatever, it's going to come out as ordinary income in the at the time that you take it out in the future. With a Roth, though, you already pay taxes up front and it grows tax-free. But when you take it out in the future, when you're retired, it, everything comes out tax-free. So that's sort of knowing how they're structured. You could sort of determine which one is going to be right for you and which ones you want to contribute in. So if you're in a in a high tax bracket, for example, you may want to preferentially use a traditional account. If you're in a low tax bracket, let's say you're just starting out as a resident, for example, you may want to use a Roth because then you will have, you're in a low tax bracket and then you have all these years, you know, three to four decades of growth, you could have all tax-free. So, you know, there's some nuances here that you could definitely take advantage of. But That's a great point that you mentioned. So I just want to add a really quickly up to that too, is that you can also do a mix, right? And not all employer offers a Roth 401k or 403b. So you may have to choose, you only have one option, which is the traditional, but you could opt for kind of what you mentioned, but a stackable can have an account outside of your traditional employer, like a Roth IRA. And I think another thing to also think about is when you are at that retirement age, is your tax bracket going to be higher than it is now? And if it is, then maybe having a higher proportion of Roth might be more beneficial than a traditional. So kind of what you mentioned, you got to figure out what's best situation for you and your significant other as you guys are planning for retirement. 
Yeah, absolutely. You you bring up a good point. And generally speaking, when people are in retirement, they they are likely to be in a lower tax bracket. Uh, and so, you know, doing the traditional, doing your working years makes total sense. What my wife and I, what we're doing is we're having a little bit of both uh, because of, you know, just generally uh, tax brackets as a whole are the lowest they have been in generation. And so we want to take advantage of that. And we are doing both. We're doing both traditional accounts and Roth money because her employer offers a Roth 403B, but mine doesn't. But we both have Roth IRAs as well. So, you know, you're, you're, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. You know, folks can take, it's not an either or, it's all the above approach that you have in front of you. Another thing to remember is uh, with all these retirement accounts is that generally speaking, when you put money in, it's generally hard, but not impossible to take money out. And you want to keep it in at, until age 59.5, 59 and a half. You could take money out, but depending on the reason why you're taking it out, you might have a penalty. So there are some exceptions to this, like, you know, if you're buying your first home or education expenses or, or what have you, uh, or healthcare expenses, um, but generally speaking, uh, if you take money out for other reasons, you're going to have incur a 10% penalty on top of any taxes that you would owe on the distribution. The nice thing about Roth IRAs is that if you put any contributions in, it can come out at any time for any reason, tax and penalty free. So that's sort of a nice thing about Roth IRAs. Now, I know there are some folks who are being... A scenario that some individuals might come across is that they could be very retirement rich where their accounts are like well-funded, but they can't necessarily access it before 59.5 without incurring penalties and things. And if they're thinking about firing, have you ever heard of FIRE, uh, Anne? Yeah, definitely. It's a movement where you're financially independent and retire early. So there is a group out there who are on the FIRE movement. But, you know, for those that are out there who may not heard about this term can you elaborate a little bit more about that yeah so those like like you said these are aggressive savers and investors who uh save as much as they can and and live off of as little as they can and their intent is to retire early and so you know if they're going to retire in their 30s or 40s or perhaps 50s they won't be able to necessarily access their retirement accounts because they're not 59.5 yet. There are ways you could access it before retirement accounts. There's, there's a rule of 55, age 55, and then there's rule section 72T where you could get like set things. These are sort of beyond the scope today. So if, if folks are interested, they could definitely uh, reach out to their accountant for more information. But the nice thing, this is where I think a taxable brokerage account can come in, especially for those fire folks, is that you can take money out at any point in time for any reason. And so a taxable brokerage account with this one, the money that you put in is after tax. And then year, year over year, it grows and you might incur taxes when it grows because if the, the underlying assets get sold, that sort of thing. But generally, when you sell something, you're going to incur capital gains taxes. And the nice thing about capital gains is that they're generally lower than ordinary tax rates, ordinary income tax rates. Uh, and so this might make sense in the right type of situation, especially like we mentioned the fire folks. But remember, taxable brokerage accounts are not protected against creditors. And so if you have a really sizable 
taxable brokerage account, it may not be protected. So you may want to consider having uh, liability insurance for, you know, on top of your homeowner's insurance or, or auto insurance or anything like that, that is in case, you know, something happens, you, do, you don't want to have a judgment against you. But the nice thing about taxable brokerage accounts is no restrictions, like I mentioned, on income. Anyone of any income can contribute money in, take money out, regardless of age, regardless of reason. So, that, you know, so you get that flexibility with taxable brokerage accounts. So folks have an option, a menu of different things to choose from. That's great. I think it's really crucial that you cover that too. And I think just want to make it uh, two more points relating to that point is that, you know, with a taxable uh, brokerage account, you're, you get taxed differently if you hold on to that stock a year, which is within a year, if you sell it, then it's called short term. So the tax rate will be much higher. And it's right now at 30, 33%, it changes depending on when you listen to this podcast, but essentially higher compared to if you hold it out longer than a year, then your lot is considered long-term stock. So your tax rate will be less. So ideally, if possible, you hold on to your stock longer than a year to avoid the tax rate. But if you want to capitalize on the gain just because there is a peak or in the stock market, then you may also consider like, what does that look like? And you do sell, it'll be on a higher tax bracket. So that's great. So, and I want to ask you, so like, you know, with all these different, options how what's your approach of, of what do you suggest um, um that plan to invest in first like what's the order in which you you approach these accounts yeah sure and i'll say this uh, as a qualifying statement is that again it really is unique to your situation and it varies persons to persons so i'll speak kind of on personally but just in general what i have seen thus far so as a general term, we're trying to save, you know, at least 15 to 20% of your income, if not more, so essentially stash away. And then, of course, if you're not able to do 15 to 20%, if you're working for an employer who is matching your money, and what matching means is that if you contribute 2%, they will match this exact 2%. So you want to at least get that matching percentage if you can't go higher and the reason being because while that's free money on the table, it's like saying, I'll contribute $100 and they're going to give me another $100. So at minimum, you want to make sure you match to whatever your employer is doing. And obviously, if you can do more, that'd be great. For those who are listening to this podcast, possibly can be high income earners. So for those, because with Roth contributions for the IRA specifically, there are income contributions and limits, and it changes every year. So I would recommend go to the IRS and look at the Roth IRA income contribution limit. So essentially, as high income earners like pharmacists, and if you have if you marry another pharmacist or another high income earners, you may not qualify for the direct contribution to the Roth. But there is another strategy out there; they can do a backdoor Roth conversion, where you can still take advantage of the Roth IRA, but not directly. So for the interest of time, I will probably won't go into in too detail, but that's another strategy that if you guys are high income earners individually or as a married couple, consider looking at a Roth IRA, a backdoor conversion. 
And just as a principle, right, just to save as early as you can, invest as much as you can. Uh, if someone who starts saving at 20 year old in college will probably have to put much less money in compared to someone starting saving at 40 years. And you'll be amazed at the amount, the difference that the individuals need to put in. And I'm making up a number here, but it could be $200 when you're at 20 year old, and it could be $1,000 when you're 40, because at 20 years, you are losing a lot of money in terms of compounding interest. So time is the essence when it comes to saving and investing. One thing I want, we talked, this podcast is really talking about retirement account. And I know there are individuals out there with kids and thinking about college fund for their kids. So I would say, you know, there are student loans for college, for education, but there's not for retirement. You're pretty much on your own and on your own island. So it's really important to prioritize saving for your retirement fund over your children's college. Um, Personally, you could start with junior college, like if you have their birthday money or Christmas money, instead of buying them gifts and whatnot, just start stashing a little bit here and there. I think that's definitely fine, but don't ever prioritize your kids' college saving uh, before doing your retirement. And in terms for me as a personal strategy is that I did a, a mix of all the things that you've mentioned thus far in the podcast to really help with the tax diversification. So I maxed out my 403B and when I first started, our employee doesn't have the Roth. So I did the traditional and then within like two years ago or so, they started offering the Roth. So I converted all over to like the Roth because I have now a good mix. And obviously, I also do the uh, Roth IRA. And uh, on top of that, um, very small amount, because there's not that much left at the end of the contribution, but very small amount, I also start kind of putting in the brokerage account. So if there's like a bonus or if there are gifts money that I get, I just slot it in there for my brokerage account. So, and it is really important, like you mentioned, um, if you want to retire early, then the 59 and a half that, before you can take out, it's good to have another type of income in addition to the traditional uh, retirement accounts. Yeah, I, I, I do the same approach to my wife and I, we, we max out because sort of knowing that retirement accounts are that are asset protected and have those tax advantages, we, we max out our 403Bs, we both do the backdoor Roth, and then whatever is left over, we do a taxable brokerage account. And that way, when we get into retirement, depending on how tax rates go in the future, whether they still are low or whether they go high, we can pick and choose from which of these tax buckets, these retirement buckets we pull out of to sort of control our tax obligations in the future. So that's sort of the approach that we've done. You know, a couple of years ago, when, you know, I was maxing out my lot traditional 403b i was like okay what more can i do and so when i learned about the backdoor roth when you mentioned that earlier i was like really excited about that and that was something i learned about i started doing them in 2016 and i've been doing them ever since every year my wife and i and so it's a very powerful tool to take advantage of a tax-free growth and we're in our 30s so we'll you know we'll have many many decades of of tax-free growth ahead of us Right, absolutely. And then you were also talking about the age when you hit 50, you 
you get more benefit with adding a little bit more. So I think that's really important. And one thing I'll say regarding like the early distribution where they penalize you, and I think they do that for a reason, right? Because if it's like something similar, your checking account would be easy, too easy for any of us to be like, all right, well, this is considered emergency or whatever, and we take the money out. So they really try to protect you. The reason why they put that in place, in my opinion, is that really trying to protect you from your own money until you're ready for retirement. Because unfortunately, I think not as many folks do have a, re a nice retirement account to prepare them for retirement. And as we all uh, grow older, you really have to have that nest egg prior to leaving the workforce or your primary outcome. So if you tell me a little bit, how do you know if you're on track? So for those out there listening to this, like how do they know that like, I'm on track with my retirement plan? So my wife and I, we uh, annually, we take a look at our net worth and our financial plan to see if we're on track. And so that includes retirement as well as saving for our, we have one son, so saving for his college, uh, how we're doing there, and, you know, all of our other goals. But with retirement, I think there's a there's some benchmarks that are out there to sort of guide you as to how much you should have saved by different age points. And so, for example, by age 30, you should have one times your salary saved. By age 35, you should have two times your salary by age 40, three times and so on and so forth. And so this is a, like a, this has helped me or helped us, I should say, sort of make sure we're on track and whether we're ahead of schedule, behind schedule or on schedule. And, you know, for folks who are behind schedule, I, I would say that not to get necessarily demoralized by that or discouraged by that. I think that should prompt folks to sort of think, okay, what can I do to sort of catch up and improve my situation. And because the thing, the nice thing about this is that, you know, depending on the age that you do it, that you will have, you know, if you, you have time on your side to sort of get caught up. Uh, and so, so that's sort of um, how I go about it. So, Anne, what about you? What kind of resources do you use or recommend to know that if you're on track for retirement? Yeah, everything that you say. And then again, if you're working for some uh, employers that offer free consultants. So each employer who has a employer plan tend to pick a large financial firm that they collaborate with. And that's probably the one that you have an account with. And usually they tend to offer free consultant or free webinars. So leverage them. Like I know I have a financial advisor within the employer account that I get assigned to. And it's really on you to reach out to them and on you to like build a relationship. And on an annual basis, I reach out to this person. I review my, like, how am I doing? How are things? And she will provide one education, also provide specifically consult on my account specifically. So I think that's very helpful. So really leverage that. But again, it's really up to you to reach out to who they are and getting those information. And I have a lot of webinars. Um, that helps review your account. I mean, the other outside of work related could be there's a variety of resources out there like calculator, like Nerd Wallet or Bank Rate, just to help you calculate. Okay, if I'm saving 500, giving 7% interest rate, I'm gonna do this for 10 years. How much does it look in 10 years from now? And I kind of mentioned what Baby was saying is that don't feel discouraged or panic if you're like, oh my gosh, I'm behind. I'm like is okay. The best time to do is now and act now. So whatever amount of saving you have is great. 
So maybe can you tell me what are some biggest barriers you think in terms of saving for retirement account or and just overall becoming financial independent? Yeah, I think the biggest one is, you know, there's a lot of people who, not a lot, but there are individuals who might find it difficult to save for retirement. And that might be because they're living at their means or they're perhaps they're living beyond their means and, and getting into like credit card debt or they're carrying credit card debt, which, you know, that has a much higher interest rate than what you could typically expect to earn in the, you know, investing. So it can count against you. So, you know, what I recommend and something that really helped my wife and I is like, you know, just a good old fashioned budget. And so like we use the principle of 50, 30, 20. So 50% is towards like needs, 30% towards wants and 20% towards like saving and investing. And using that as a guide has helped us. We are actually at a point where we're aggressively, we're being like super aggressive um, because we know time in the market is more important. So like we're, we're putting in our dues now in our 20s and 30s. So that way perhaps it could be a little bit easier in our 40s and 50s is we're saving 30 to 35% for retirement just so that, you know, we can have that, that time on our side. But I think another barrier is like folks uh, having, you know, life happens and they might, uh, emergencies happen, um, health, you know, health things, um, disability, et cetera. So I think, you know, having adequate risk mitigation is going to be really important. And what I mean by that is making sure you have like life insurance to protect uh, your loved ones in, in your family. And so we have a term life insurance that is independent of our employer um, because many employers offer that as a benefit, but it may not be enough for your situation. So you might need to supplement. Um, same thing with disability. Many employers offer disability insurance, but it, it, you have to ask yourself, is it enough? Do you want to have your own? And so we have disability insurance. Uh, we also have umbrella insurance. I mentioned earlier that um, that sort of general liability insurance because of the, the type of assets that you might have uh, may not be protected. So my wife and I, we have assets that are not protected in retirement accounts. And so we have umbrella insurance and then uh, an emergency fund of, you know, the general rule of thumb of three to six months worth of expenses. What about you, uh, Anne? What do you think are the some of the barriers that you have seen of, you know, or you perhaps you encountered yourself Sure. And, uh, you know, before I go, I, I want to mention about the life insurance part that you were talking about. So it's always good to have it with employer, but, you know, you're never going to know what happened with your job or like the pandemic happened and a lot of people lost their jobs. So it's really important to have your life insurance outside of your employer because first life insurance is usually 20, 30 year plan and you will not don't want it to be discontinued because you lost your job. So it's really important that you get it outside so you can have that continuity, especially if dependent. So I just want to uh, mention that real quick. I, I think for for me personally, it's kind of missionary, like living out or be, beyond the means, right? So it's not really how much money you make, it's how much money you keep. And that someone said that to me at one point, and I believe I read that somewhere as well. And I think that really hits home for me because if you imagine uh, most pharmacists are six-figure salaries, so 100000 but if you're in a year you spend 200000 then you will forever be in debt and trying to pay off versus if you 
earn a hundred thousand dollar, you keep at least sixty to seventy thousand and kind of follow what we were saying, 50, 30, 20 percent rule, then you're more on the right track. It's not earning more money equals more wealth. It's really how much you keep the money that you earned in the the you really try to cut down the expenses um, as much as possible. Um, so I think, you know, the I'll share a personal story uh, in pharmacy school, actually college and pharmacy school, I didn't even have a car. So when I first got my real pharmacist job, I bought like a brand new BMW. I really enjoyed driving that thing. Um, but soon I learned about financial literacy and learning about the financial lessons that we've discussed today. And it was a, what I call a money mistake. So I sold that car so fast as soon as I learned it and it, it depreciated like 50% after two years. So that's one thing I was thinking is just buying things that are quote, not necessary. So really evaluate what is needed versus a want. And I think for me, that was more of a want than a need. I could just settle on a pre-owned 20 or 30 grand car and not the car that I got. Um, so, I mean, that's just one, but it could apply to a lot of other things, right? Houses, boat, just other big purchases that you need to really carefully consider. Is it within your means to do so? And what other responsibilities that you are helping with? And at that point, I was taking care of my parents too. So financially, I would say that's one of the, not the smartest decision I've made. So one thing is keeping down the expenses, but I also want to say um, you also want to consider how to increase your revenues, right? Not necessarily advocating like trying to get two jobs and working overtime and not having enough time for your families and doing things that you love, but really think about what other type of passive income or strategies or side hustles that you can do on top of your full-time jobs, or can you turn your hobbies into money? So for me, I enjoy talking to people about career and financial. So I actually venture on coaching and that is something that I love to do. And yet I turn it into a side hustle and I love health literacy, medical writing um, to the public consumers. So I freelance for uh, different journals and I make my, I mean, it's not much to be honest, but it's something just again, that you're doing something you love and you make some money on top of that uh, on your quote off hours. So I think all of those things are really important to consider. Um, and Bobby and I share the same journey as uh, we both invest in real estate where again, it's passive income, right? Being able to, even if you sleep, you still generate interest or it generate money. And that's why stocks are popular because even you quote, don't do anything, there's still money money generating from either dividends or interest or just compounded over the years. You still do some work regardless of what you pick because you still have to put some sweat equity in there, but you may not have to work as hard as find another full-time pharmacist job to exchange for your time for the money. Yeah. And what, what I like about, you know, some of the mistakes that you mentioned, they sort of resonate with me as well. Also, because, you know, different people have different priorities of what they want to spend on. And that's okay. That's what's the nice thing about personal finance is it's personal. And so for my wife and I, we, we purposefully kept our expenses down for our, like, the big ticket items, I know, uh, like home housing and, and cars, 
but we rather spend our money on experiences. So we make sure we budget for that in our 50, 30, 20. And so like, you know, we, we go on like really nice vacations. I mean, it's been a while and it's, but the pandemic hasn't helped with the, the vacant vacation front, but you know, that's what we plan for. And that way we, we make those experiences. We have those memories done versus things because, you know, we value those experiences. But I know, for, you know, my, I have friends who are huge car enthusiasts mm -hmm. and they, they, they get a lot of joy out of that. And they, it's a hobby of theirs. And I think that's, that's great. As long as, you know, you're planning around that and accounting for that in your 50, 30, 20 sort of approach. Yeah, that's perfect. I think you uh, summarize it beautifully beautifully so it's really you know what I call it's the splurge section right like whatever it is your budget you want to splurge on and I'm with you in terms of creating experience and vacation so that's now is something that we go at least once a year like we said pandemic doesn't help um versus when I make that car purchase that wasn't intentional that was a I would call it illogical or a rash decision. So like, oh, I go from negative student loans to, oh, I'm gonna make a hundred thousand, I can't afford this. But in reality, I didn't really know about budget. I didn't know about what is the, the right approach. So um, definitely it's really, if it's in your plan, you really have to enjoy the money you earn. Like definitely, so. Yeah, it's kind of like it. being on a diet, right? Like if you, if you only could eat vegetables and 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 lean meat and that's all you could eat you're you're gonna fail that diet you need to have a little bit of cheat days here and there and and i think that's what it, that mentality is important because with personal finance it's it's mostly behavioral like you know the math the math is math right but it's the emotional and behavior aspect so i think you know giving it's important for people for like in the way we approach it is like we give ourselves our own splurges and and it helps us keep on track Absolutely. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. I want to thank you, Dr. Babik Shah, for joining us today to discuss investing yourself, raising personal financial literacy, part two. Stay tuned for our next episode, part three, Know Your Numbers, and it is the final episode. Join us here on Tuesday where we will talk with ASHP members about leadership topics within pharmacy practice. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.